Welcome to Party Politics. This is Jeronimo Cortina, an associate professor of political science and the associate director at the Center for Mexican-American Studies. And I'm Brandon Runninghouse, a political science professor from the University of Houston. Welcome to Party Politics. We are rapidly ascending into madness when it comes to the end of the 2020 election. I hope you had a wine-infested night because I know that we all did staying up late watching returns. It was a stem winder of an election, and we are still really in the middle of it, right? And I think once and for all, we found that really it's not like necessarily results night, it's election night. So we're still working through some of these. Hieronimo, the current makeup from, according to NPR, as of the time of recording this, has Joe Biden at 264 electoral votes, Donald Trump at 214 electoral votes, and a bevy of lawsuits to accompany all of these results. So let's talk about the president's legal approach here. He's filed a lawsuit suits in Pennsylvania and in Nevada. In Pennsylvania, he wants to intervene in a Pennsylvania case um, at the Supreme Court that deals with whether or not ballots received up to three days after the election can be counted. He wants to have more people on the ground uh, to observe what's happening, implying that that's not happening. And in Wisconsin, he has asked for a recount, which legally at this point may not be permissible. But what do you take away from the president's approach? And uh, what's your sort of take, generally speaking, on where things are the presidential vote on the 2020 election? Right. So I think that, uh, first of all, we knew that this was coming. Uh, yeah. President Trump, since many few weeks ago, he hinted that mail-in ballots were fraudulent and that they shouldn't be counted after election night and that uh, he was going to challenge it. So he's just keeping promise, right? He's just keeping his word and and moving forward. <laughs> yeah, um, to, to, to sue his way to the White House, right? Like Abe Lincoln did. <laughs> right, well, exactly. And, uh, you know, he has played the legal system before uh, when he yeah. was a businessman. So it's nothing out of the ordinary. But I think that these challenges are going to be complicated. I mean, recounts and those challenges do not often right. turn elections uh, the other side. I think it's, uh, you know, maybe a couple of hundred of votes mm -hmm. going the other side, et cetera, et cetera. But that's it. So yeah. we'll see what's going to happen. And also the interesting thing here is that, as you know, the Supreme Court tends to always like stay away from state level electoral issues. Yeah. Like they always shy away and say like, you know what, that's uh, yeah, that's gross. not our problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> Except right. they say, ew. Uh, so th they don't like to do that. And, yeah. uh, you know, in Pennsylvania and the other states, they have already said that what they're doing is okay. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, the president's making a series of you know, political claims through these legal arguments. I don't know that legally there's going to be a lot of traction that they're going to get. The Biden campaign has responded by saying, like, our lawyers are ready, you know, let's saddle up. And I don't know that it, anything's going to change. The The votes are still being counted, obviously. Pennsylvania is still being counted. Georgia is still being counted. So those numbers are moving in Biden's favor. Whether he'll win Georgia, we don't know. There's a good chance he'll win Pennsylvania, which means it's game over. And I think that's really where much of the kind of, you know, focus of the legal strategy will be. So we're still waiting. Um, like you say, for the, you know, we know from actually our colleagues at MIT who've done work on recounts in Wisconsin, which happens really frequently, um, we know that, the, that it doesn't change the results very much, like 0.17 to 0.5, you know, degree of change from the initial count. So, and then depends on how they recount it, like either by hand or with the optical scanner. So there's a lot of, um, you know, um, there's a, I think there, there, there's very little chance that the, the sort of recount will change the estimates very dramatically. So 
they're going to have to pursue a different kind of strategy. And it's not clear that's going to work. And the president, like you say, has telegraphed already to say, you know, we're going to sue this, you know, process into the Stone Age. And it, I think, is fairly, you know, bland of a strategy in terms of the politics. Yeah, but there's a limit, right? I mean, there's a calendar. It's December 8th. That's the magic day to talk about all Mm -hmm. or or go to safe harbor, uh, as they say. So... That's it. It's December 8th, and we move to December 14th, where electors get together in their states, count their votes, sign their piece of paper, send it back to D.C., and then... Put up the smoke signals and, you know... Exactly, and and (laughs) they have until... Right. (laughs) What I don't understand is, well, I guess it's because it's it's an old document, but, uh, you know, they have until December 23rd uh, to submit their ballot. So, So there is a timeline. So we cannot, you know, be in... March of 2021, right? <laughs> right. And still fighting well, these things. Yeah, yeah, gray beards and, you know, we're all ragged, <laughs> like uh, waiting for the presidential vote. Right. Well, right, I, right. Donald Trump might not win the presidency. We're going to have to wait and see. But what's for sure is that the Republicans did well in districts and states all across the country. In the U.S. House, the Republicans picked up a handful of seats. Most of the House Republicans overperformed Donald Trump. And that's an interesting development. The U.S. Senate, the expectations were that Democrats were going to be really competitive in South Carolina, in Iowa, in Montana, and it didn't really happen. They did flip two seats. They flipped Arizona and they flipped Colorado, which I think signals kind of where the changes politically are happening in this nation. But we didn't see a big shift in these places. So, you know, Jamie Harrison, who raised a bunch of money in South Carolina against Lindsey Graham, got beat. You know, Joni Ernst from Iowa was able to retain her seat. Steve Daines, the senator from Montana, routed Governor Steve Bullock. So it was really a Republican romp. And I'm wondering why. I mean, the expectations were that, no, you know, Donald Trump was unpopular. The economy is doing badly. And COVID is literally killing people all across the country. And yet still, the incumbent party does better. Tell me why. Do I have to tell you why? <laughs> Spill your guts. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I, we have never seen this, right? Uh, because uh, all political science literature uh, points out to this uh, uh, notion that when the economy is doing bad, the incumbent is going to lose. Uh, you know, the Dow Jones index was going bad before the election. There has been social unrest on and so forth. But I guess... As we have said before, this is not an election, right? Because we're still in the election. Yes. Uh, that <laughs> is uh, an ideological uh, election. Ideology, from an ideological point of view, this election was determined before it started. So people knew which side they were going to support. But it was, I think, an election about turnout and who turned out in this election. Probably people that did not vote in 2018 decided to vote this election. Yeah. So I think that that has become a very important point. And the other important point, I think it's it was perhaps a referendum on COVID management yeah. and then the economy, whether you think that the most important issue, as we found in, in our poll with CMAS, that if you were affected by COVID, you were going to be more likely to vote for the Democratic candidate, in this case, Joe Biden. Yeah. And issues about the economy, if you think that the economy should be open and, you know, COVID is like whatever, but it's more important, the economy, then 
you should vote for the Republican candidate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Biden was unable to make serious gains into men, white voters without a college degree and rural residents. He did well enough in Wisconsin and did well enough with African-American voters in Wisconsin uh, and, and Michigan to be able to you'll probably win those states as they're still sort of counting, haven't certified yet. But so Biden was able to just barely eke by. But look, I mean, you know, Trump barely eked by the big, you know, blue wall in 2016. Exactly. Biden barely ekes a win out of these states in 2020. No, so, we need to win, my friend. Uh, no, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's that's part of the story here. But uh, I do think that it that part of this is basically the kind of alignment and realignment we've seen in this country that fundamentally expects to, I think, minimize every other issue, right? I mean, the, like we said, there's serious problems with COVID and the economy is in shambles, but it wasn't necessarily something that most people were thinking as a referendum. So we think of as political scientists, you know, incumbent parties being punished for poor performance, but that's not happening, right? At least right. in the numbers we think. And so, like you say, I think people wanted to see the economy back on track and they think Donald Trump's going to help them get there. And right. they're willing to look past the kind of outrageous claims he makes and maybe some of the mismanagement from the White House on this to be able to move in that direction. But, and I think a lot of this kind of came home to roost in Texas. So let's shift and talk about the Lone Star State. Again, expectations were sky high. Democrats were going to take back the Texas House. They were going to be able to win the Senate seat. Joe right. Biden was going to take Texas for the first time since before I was born, since before Apple computing was a thing. <laughs> um, but none of that happened. So what's your overall impression of where Texas is politically? Well, I think, I mean, you can see it both sides. I think that on the one hand, you know, uh, Democrats might be disappointed in terms of of not, you know, flipping all the seats that they wanted to flip, gaining control of the Texas House. But also, I think there's a couple of silver linings here that are very important. One is that... <laughs> Tune in, Democrats, because <laughs> your you day's go. about to get better. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like a psychologist. Like that. No, you're not so bad. I like it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not your fault. <laughs> exactly. It's a world. No, I think that, um, you know, uh, elections have become more competitive. And in this space, we have said it 11,000 times, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, the likelihood of, of Texas flipping blue, well, it was there. Because all polls put President Trump and Vice President Biden basically technically tie. And, you know, that's how we ended up. Mm -hmm. So the margins of victory for me as a data guy are the interesting things, right? We have seen, for example, that John Cornyn indeed won the election. And when he uh, won the election back in 2014, he did it with 27% margin of victory. Now that margin of victory is between 9 and 10%, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a very important signal. The president um, might have won Texas. Yes, indeed. But again, that margin of victory decreased from 2012, from 2016, and now 2020. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there is a market for the Democratic Party to make inroads. There is a market for the Republican Party, especially in certain parts of the electorate, to make inroads. So I think that it's open season, and whoever mm -hmm. can have a mixed strategy in terms of how to get people out of vote is going to get the state. Yeah, it's almost like running a good campaign is now back in vogue, right? Like that's going to matter again. And that's right. frankly good news for democracy. 
I saw this not so much as a Democratic failure as a Republican success. They steered into the skid. They were able really to adjust from what they saw in 2018 and create a message that really sold. They obviously, I think, supersized the role of sort of national events like, you know, protest movements and defunding the police questions and the Green New Deal. Democrats down ballot in Texas didn't necessarily subscribe to every sort of element of this, but Republicans painted them as being kind of too radical. And that worked. It maybe isn't totally fair, but it definitely was a strategy that for them was successful. So there's no slack in the Republicans' rope. They really did tie this up. And you can see the effect all the way down the ballot, Geronimo, right? We saw that basically the House is exactly the same. The Democrats flipped a seat and the Republicans flipped a seat. Republicans were able to win back a seat in the Western Houston district here, 132. Gina Canale lost to Mm -hmm. Mike Schofield, who she beat the incumbent in 2018. And Democrats flipped Sarah Davis's district, 134 here in Houston. So Houston is the epicenter of the world once again. Um, But every other incumbent held on, right? Which is really surprising considering that there was tens of millions of dollars, right? Hundreds and thousands of doors knocked on and, you know, how many mail pieces that you couldn't even count. So a lot of effort really to kind of keep things stable. I wonder what you think about this issue. Do you think that people went with the kind of devil that they they know? That is to say Mm. that, you know, people are really worried about healthcare, the economy. They're worried about jobs. Joe Biden, you know, I think probably went too far to talk about how the oil and gas industry had to reform or that there was going to be some major changes. I think that rattled a lot of people in Texas, especially down ballot, especially in Houston, right? Right. The Western part of Houston, for sure. People were worried, so they kind of voted for what they knew, right? I mean, one was the pandemic. I mean, Democrats did not have significant ground game. I mean, meeting uh, boots on the ground, knocking on doors with, you know, masks and stuff. So they relied on basic mailings and text messages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I got from both parties, but obviously I got more mailings uh, uh, significantly from local races. Obviously, the issue of oil resonates here in Texas, as you say, and, and that had important implications. But I think that, you know, the Democrats played it wrong. Yeah. Why they played it wrong? Because it is obvious that the big oil companies are transitioning. They have said it. They have announced it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the energy economy in Texas is not going to disappear. It's just going to transition. It's not going to be something that is just like, okay, we're going to stop it. Yeah. So I think that the way that they delivered the message was the wrong way. Yeah. I mean, I think still that... The- the you know three G's work for Republicans: God, guns, and gas. We saw tremendous votes coming out of rural areas for Donald Trump. He was able to get more votes out of those places than than Biden right. was able to get out of big blue urban counties. Even though that was a sort of narrative, right? I think that Biden making these comments about the energy industry, while probably true and maybe you know economically the smart thing to do for the future, rattled a lot of people, and that was I think something that came back to hurt him. Chief Art Acevedo here in Houston, who is as, you know, kind of political a police chief as one can get, called out the Austin City Council in particular, right? He is saying that basically that the Democrats can thank the socialist Democrats and the defund the police crowd that was the reason people voted against Democrats down ballot. Do you think that that's right? Do you think that this sort of was a reaction to 
perceive, you know, socialism or kind of progressive politics? And do you think that uh, Chief Acevedo is correct? Well, I think that certainly, especially, you know, going very quickly to Miami-Dade County, right? The issue of socialism play a very important role. I mean, uh, basically, uh, I think Republicans played that narrative over and over and over and over and over, right? And people, especially down there, said like, "Eh, we don't like this stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Because they have experienced it before, and I understand that. I think that here the narrative, and once again, we have said it, the Republican Party is very, very well disciplined in terms of having a direct, concise message, right? The message is crafted, and then every single Republican repeats that message. Mm -hmm. So that resonates within the electorate. I think that having the discussions in terms of defunding the police you know, doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of people. You cannot defund the police. I mean, it's something that cannot happen. Uh, Why? Because, uh, you know, we live in a society that needs policing, period. So I think that the narrative was different. I think, for example, Chief Acevedo has a different narrative in terms of reallocating budget or using uh, extra budget to reinforce some of the areas within the police department that can take into consideration mental health, community policing, so on and so forth. So I think those issues really resonated amongst voters and had a significant impact on going out of vote. Yeah. Because one one thing that I want to know what you think is maybe Democrats or, or the whole issue is that some Democrats might have say, you know what, I'm not going to vote. Yeah, I think that they didn't have the message that they needed. And I want to talk about the Latino vote in South Texas in particular. But we may have seen the kind of crest of the blue wave, right? I mean, the gerrymandered nature of these districts limits the ability for Democrats to be able to compete. They're so oddly drawn that in some cases, it's nearly impossible for Democrats to win. They overperformed in 2018 and probably performed pretty well in 2020 and yet still, you know, came up short in almost every case. Now, you know, they're getting closer, right? I mean, you say statewide, you know, the number of votes for Republicans is basically plateaued. It increased this time, but mostly is kind of plateaued whereas for Democrats has been increasing. Um, but there's only so much that you can go. Well, I mean, just look at Fort Bend County, right? Yeah. I mean, the countywide races were easily won by Democrats. Yeah. And District 22nd, another, you know, the 28th Texas House, they didn't win. And it's, yeah. you know, the way that these districts are, yeah. are drawn, that is it's just something. It's bizarre. It looks like, yeah, like a, a, a gaggle of spiders, right? Like it's, right. It, and, and what's going to happen, though, is, of course, with redistricting, you're going to see these gains solidified, right? The d- Republicans are going to cement these districts, if not like oh, exactly as they are, oh, yeah. you know, in a way that benefits them even more, even though they're going to have to add right. seats. So that's really interesting. Um, Let's talk about the sort of the vote from the Latino community. The South Texas obviously didn't come in 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 it all well for Joe Biden. The Republican share of the border communities has increased from about 30% in 2012 to about 42% in 2020. Hillary Clinton did uh, better in these communities than Joe Biden did. This is really a, a problem for Democrats. They didn't have a clear message, I think, for Latino voters. They were focusing on turnout and not on persuasion. We know from our poll with the CMOS, as you said, that many Latinos are not getting talked to. They don't have the kind of connection to any party. So this is really, I think, an opportunity as well as a problem for Democrats. Right. So we need to contextualize these because when we're talking about the Latino vote, now in Texas, we have a region 
well, Latino vote to a certain extent, right? Yeah. So we have voters on RGB, the Rio Grande Valley, right? Biden still won the Latino vote. So that's the first point. Yeah. Yes, there was uh, around a 10-point drop over 2018, and obviously over 2016. But uh, RGB Latinos represent around 50% of the Latino vote in Texas, right? So it's it's a big chunk still, but it's 15%. So when you look at Texas, when you look at Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, and Austin, in those majority Latino precincts, voter turnout was dramatically high, right? In some places, there was between 65, 75% uh, voter turnout. So that means that in those places, the Latino electorate was engaged. I totally agree with you that, you know, the Democratic Party didn't do its homework and arrive 15 minutes before the exam. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yeah. say, did you study? Did like, you study? Oh, is that like, today? <laughs> right. <laughs> did you study? Uh, no, no, no. So, so that is extremely problematic. The other very interesting phenomenon that we saw in the Rio Grande Valley was that the Trump train had a superb presence yeah. over there. So observers of Rio Grande ballot politics were expecting President Trump to win those mm -hmm. counties, right? And they were fended off. So it's kind of the same narrative that we see in in the rest of the state for Republicans, that uh, that, that was a success. So, you know, here you see both points. On the one hand, Democrats were able to fend off Republicans' presence in, in, in the Rio Grande Valley and still won, but with a shorter margin. Yeah. And it's that margin that's really the, the trouble, right? And with the less percent turnout and less of a better share, Democrats are just not able to compete statewide. That and the fact that, like we said earlier, the rural vote really has come out in big numbers for the Republican ticket right. is just a, a kind of recipe for disaster for Democrats. Joe Biden needed about a million and a half votes, a margin from the big counties, and he didn't get it. He got about 900,000 votes. Donald Trump got about 1.5 million net votes in the other counties, the more rural and medium-sized counties. So that change is really something that the Democrats have got to change. I mean, we've seen, as we said, the kind of rising number of Democratic votes, but realistically, you know, they're still going to have to kind of fight tooth and nail to get more of those votes to come out. So there's still a lot of people, including Latinos, who need to be registered to vote and need to come out to vote. And that's two really hard things to do, right? I want to talk a little about the Senate race because that's an interesting development, too. We saw that MJ Hager underperformed Joe Biden in Texas by about 360,000 votes. That's really interesting. I think partly what's happening is that you've got a whole bunch of people who are Biden corn in voters. I don't want to sound like an armchair quarterback on this, right? But mm. realistically, that's kind of where the sweet spot for the politics in Texas is, at least right now. Clearly, there are gains we made in other places. But that's really, I think, um, an interesting chunk of voters, right? That What are they thinking? And you know, how is it that you know, they're going to vote in the future? Because it's clear that Donald Trump underperformed Republicans all across the ballot. Right. In fact, I was looking just way, way down ballot. I was looking in Collin County. In Collin County, the tax assessor collector in Collin County got 40,000 more votes than Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> right? So you're seeing significant <laughs> ticket splitting, right. which I think is really bad for the Republican Party, assuming Trump is at the top. But Cornyn seemed to have a kind of better shot at it. And that really paid off. Or is it that MJ Hager simply just didn't perform as well as other Democrats and 
you know, as we said in the last couple of podcasts, but, but, people think yeah. she's a dino, right? She's a McCain right. voter, right? She didn't make nice with Royce West. She's not to be trusted. Um, there's something going on there. So well, what do you think is happening here? Yes, uh, I think uh, in parties, I think both, right? I think that, you know, MJ Hager got money a little too late yeah. in the race. Name recognition was something that it was not there at the beginning of the race. Senator Corning, you know, over uh, the whole majority has been silent on all these scandals. He's not a lot in the media. He's kind of a, you know, reserved politician. So he's, I I mean, he's, you know, boring and not bombastic, right? That's That's the new model, I think, for the Republican ticket. Yeah, he broke with Trump on trade, on the border wall. And he was very clear to say, look, if you're against Trump in Washington, he's going to bury you, right? You're not going to get anything done. So right. here's realistic John Cornyn, right, level-headed to come in to say, look, I can't be, you know, against him, even though I don't always agree with him, right? Maybe so, that's the model, right, that, you know, right. Republicanism but, can – I guess put it this way. Like, for Trump, it's the dose that makes the poison, right? Like, a mm. little bit can be enough for Republicans to get activated, but too much is going to kill you. Right. But also, I would like to bring Mr. Beto O'Rourke into the mix, right? <laughs> I've never heard of him. Is he, uh, is he a he, local? Yeah. Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> He's a son of Texas. Um, uh, okay, there you go. Um, so I think it's a weird mix, right? Because on the one hand, you have, for example, uh, Senator Corning. And then on the other hand, you have Beto O'Rourke right. that really created a movement, especially among young voters, especially within minority communities. And the important thing here is that, as we have said before, you have to run the right candidate. Yeah. Uh, and the question here is, MJ Hare was the right candidate? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I'm not going to uh, make any judgments on that. that well, Democrats that's had options, is. right? I mean, right. They, you know, Christina Tassoon Ramirez, you know, Royce West, right. um, a bunch of people I'm forgetting. I'm, you know, but like there are several people who, you know, were potential for Democrats and they chose to go the kind of moderate route. Was that smart? Yeah, but, but well, I mean, uh, well, we, we, <laughs> like, not. what do you want me to say? <laughs> like, well, right. mm. yeah, I the, mean, answer, the answer is no, because she lost. But right. realistically, I mean, it was the best choice, right? Like we say, like, there's a kind of sweet spot in Texas, and I think Democrats haven't quite found it yet, right? I mean, yeah. they clearly need to activate the base uh, well, like I, Beto did. But I think but that the sweet spot for, for Democrats, it's a candidate that looks like Beto O'Rourke. Okay. I think that's the sweet spot. Okay. So, you, you, so basically, like a white kind of, moderate to progressive young democrat That's i think so spot. i mean okay. i don't know if, if in terms of of race and ethnicity if, right. if, if, but i think that a moderate progressive yeah he's got ties to the latino community you know speak right. spanish moderate um, progressive i think that's that's the kind of candidate s- skateboard or no like you pro skateboard <laughs> I, I i've never Basically, I've never managed to stay on, on, on the skateboard. <laughs> yeah, me neither, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> but rollerblades, not the way to go, though. That's, no, that's no, I like the California, ones with four like, wheels. <laughs> right, yeah. The I skates might, with four wheels, be, it's better. <laughs> I want to be flat. Well, let's finish up by talking about some points of optimism for, for Democrats um, and for Republicans. So we'll end on a positive note. So what's a kind of point of optimism from 2020 that, that uh, Democrats can look to? Well, margins of victory are getting slow. Mm. Races are becoming more competitive. And I think, as we have said before, this is good for democracy. This is good for public policy. And I think that in the future, we're going to see more competitive races across the state. Yeah. Look, Joe Biden won Williamson County and Hayes County, two fast-growing suburban areas. Obama and Clinton didn't win these districts. So 
That's a plus. They came close to winning Tarrant County, which is the last big blue urban county to flip to the Democrats. So that's a plus. By the way, they won. I mean, they you know everything else you know they lost, but they won the Senate seat uh, in, uh, in in Bear County and kind of points west from there. Roland Gutierrez is going to be the new senator. That gives the Democrats enough votes in the state Senate to be able to not block but really restrict what Republicans can do. So that's a point of optimism. What about Republicans? What's something they can grow on? I mean, obviously you know, big wins and they stem the, you know, the the kind of crest of the blue wave. But what's something they can build on? Well, I think that they need to start uh, talking more to the Latino vote yeah. uh, as well yeah, as, as as Democrats. Mm-hmm. I That's think that uh, they need to do that uh, yeah. and, and they need to really think themselves uh, if they're going to continue. I mean, in such a way that is going to allow them to make inroads into the Latino community. And the Latino vote is not homogeneous. Right. So it's all for grabs to a certain extent. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, here's what here's I think we forget about all this, right? That the 86 session for the legislature was really good for Republicans, right? They gave the people what they wanted, right? Exactly. Education funding in particular, right? right. Teacher raises. It wasn't a perfect, you know, moment, but it gave them the opportunity to talk about things that were positive. We forget about this, but realistically, that's where they're going to win. So this is definitely something they can grow on. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe a, maybe a signal for what should happen in the 87th if they're smart. Yeah. Well, I mean, COVID, no funding. <laughs> but anyways, we'll see what happens in January. Uh, but this is it for uh, this week, Brandon. Uh, this has been Party Politics, usually recorded at the George B. Geary Performance Studio at Houston Public Media. Special thanks to our web and graphics team here at Houston Public Media. Thanks to our producer, Troy Schultz. And a big thanks to our audio engineer, Todd Big Audio Holslander. I'm Jeronimo Cortina. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse. We'll see you next week. <laughs>